You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Jackson, you guys can be seated. The nostalgia. Circa about 94, Jackson. What year were you born? 98. If you know, you know. Man, the memories have flooded back. But seriously, thank you, buddy. I appreciate you leading us this morning in worship. Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. If you have your Bible, we'll be in Exodus chapter 33. And Lord willing, we're going to try to take on the whole chapter. Now, I may get to the end of this and um, not be able to cover everything that I had planned. But if, if that happens, then we'll have a, a brief overlap next week and be sure we cover the basis. But the plan this morning is for us to talk through this this chapter, a section at a time, and there'll be, uh, uh, throughout it, periodically we'll stop and pause and have some personal application, and then we'll get to one really, really massive reality um, towards the end. And so that, I'm, I'm just going to tell you up front, the majority of our time at the end is going to be centered around um, the Lord's response to Moses when he says, show me your glory, because I believe that what we see there is is really a fundamental um, truth about who God actually is. Um, we learn something of, of, of what the Bible teaches about the nature and the character and the power and the reality of God. And so we'll we'll wrap our time up there, but I still think it will it will push us towards um, back to Exodus 33 to see some some personal application. And so let me pray for us and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for another opportunity for us to gather this morning um, in your name. And Lord, it's a great privilege um, that you have allowed us not only the, the freedoms, but the physical ability um, to be here. Um, I know that there are people who would desire to be here that cannot be here. And so we never, especially after last year, Lord, don't let us ever take for granted um, the fact that we, this morning, at least at this point, can gather face to face. We thank you for that. We believe that is your design and your will for your people to gather together in person with your word opened. Um, and so, Father, we ask that you would come to us and you would minister to us. We will see this morning that one of the greatest distinctions of what it means to be a Christian is the fact that your presence is with us. Not only as individuals, but also as, as we gather this morning, your word teaches us that you minister to us and meet with us in a very special and unique way, in, in a way like you don't do in any other time when we gather together and open your word. So, so thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for this moment. And Father, I pray that you would teach us from your word today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 32 concluded on a, a somber note of divine judgment, as you probably noticed. I, I didn't cover it in detail last week, but in verse 35 of chapter 32, that the Lord sent a plague on the people and gives the reason for the plague. Doesn't tell us what the plague was, but does let us know that the reason for the plague was because they made the calf, and it was the calf that Aaron Aaron made. And so considering the rest of chapter 32, if you've been with us, 
And I think the reader at this point um, is, is asking some questions. And, and I do want to take just a, a brief second to point out to you just, just how, how well written this narrative is. Um, and I know that you would say, well, it's inspired by God. And you know what? You're absolutely right, which it speaks to the inspiration of God. And it speaks to the miracle that this uh, writing even is that we have it before us. But if, I mean, if you understand anything about the artistry, and I don't claim to be a, a professional by any stretch of the imagination, but I know good writing when I see it. And, and but, but if you understand enough about writing to appreciate um, the way that this, uh, the way that this is written, the way that this narrative flows and how, how it's intentional about pointing out specific people at specific times. And again, it's, it's all the Lord, but again, this is a blockbuster hit. Like it keeps you on your toes. The suspense is building. And so as chapter 32 ends, the, the reader is probably asking questions, you know, like the, the writer would want them to ask, what, what will happen next? Maybe this question, is, is there actually any hope for the Israelites? Or they, would they fall in the category of no hope? Or this question, can, can this relationship, the Israelites with the Lord, can it actually be repaired? Well, let's dive in and see, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. In verse 3, the Lord says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you along the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And verse 4 says, When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb. Onwards. So the Lord is obviously staying true to his promise that he made back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. And that promise was that his descendants would be taken to the promised land. But the difference is, is this avenging angel, this, this sort of no-name angel, and I call him an avenging angel because this angel is going to get all of the ites out of the promised land. All of the ones that are currently inhabiting the promised land, this angel, um, directed by the Lord, sent from the Lord, will drive out all of the enemies from the land. And just so we're clear and we understand what's going on, the Lord is showing mercy to His people by allowing them to continue on. It teaches us something of God's faithfulness to His Word um, that is not dependent on the obedience of His people. If, if this covenant was fully dependent on the obedience of the people, then this, this story would already be over. And so the Lord is going to be true to His promises and true to His Word as He always is. And He says that they can go on to the land that's flowing with milk and honey. I will even drive out the inhabitants. I will push the enemies out of there so that you can have all of the pleasures and the resources that is living in the promised land. But there is a caveat. And the one caveat is that He will not go up among them. I mean, you think about that in the, in the context of what we've read for the last few months of the Lord giving His law, giving the Ten Commandments, giving the Book of the Covenant. 
the whole interaction with the sealing of the covenant, and then Moses going back up the mountain to receive specific instructions for worship. What the law was about, what the instructions were worship were ultimately about, was the Lord dwelling among His people. The whole point of the whole Exodus was that the Lord would be worshipped and celebrated for who He is in the midst of His people. So in spite of all of that, we saw what happened in Exodus 32. The people became restless and they fashioned an idol. They still wanted Yahweh. They wanted the God who saved them, but they didn't, they didn't want Him in the way that He was presenting Himself. And they didn't like His timetable, so they made their own version, which is no version at all, of Yahweh. But I think we see something encouraging in the Israelites here. Now, we've been pretty hard on the Israelites. And to be quite frank with you, the, the Bible is pretty hard on the Israelites. But we didn't say it from a self-righteous point of view. I mean, I, I was honest with you, and I heard back from some of you guys that you understood what we mean. Like, when we see the Israelites' disobedience, it's like we're looking in the mirror. We understand what it's like to be prone to wander from the Lord despite His faithfulness to us in the past. But I do think we see something encouraging. I think you see it beginning in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, the disastrous word is that they can go to the promised land, but the Lord will not be with them. It would not have been surprising at all if we would have seen the Israelites respond maybe in this way. Okay, all right, so Moses, let us get this straight. The Lord's going to send an avenging angel. The angel's going to go and drive out the enemy so we don't have to try to do that ourselves. Correct. So we still get to inhabit the promised land and all of the resources that are available there. Moses would say, correct. What we might expect at this point is for them to say, I mean, sounds good to me. Let's go. There is really a trail that I could go down on that in regards to our tendencies to love and desire God's gifts more than God Himself. But I, but I think your mind will go there as, as the Spirit leads you, because you see that plainly here. They hit the pause button. This is a disastrous word. They're not concerned about the promised land. They're not concerned about the blessing that that will be. What they're most concerned about, and the Bible says what they mourn over, they're sad that God Himself will not be with them. At this point, the plans for the tabernacle have been scrapped. Now they come back to it. But right now, part of God's divine judgment on the people, even though these are the ones, if you remember from last week, that when Moses said, who's on the Lord's side, these are the ones that came over. The ones that didn't were killed. And, and, and so even though we've seen them choose rightly and go to the Lord's side, there was still consequence for the fashioning of the calf. Part of it was a plague, and part of it is what we see here, that the Lord says that He... He will not go with them to the promised land. And so the close divine presence of God would not be within the camp. What they had created with the calf failed them miserably. And because of the great sin of idolatry, they now have this unnamed angel that they're not pumped about. Philip Ryken is a commentary that I've relied heavily on throughout this study. And he had a, a real short sentence that I thought explained it well. It said this, they, speaking of the Israelites, they were still booked for the promised land, but the Lord had canceled his reservations. 
However, th this wasn't only an act of discipline that the Lord wasn't going with them, but you probably noticed that this was an act of mercy as well. Two different times we're told that the Lord tells them, for Moses to tell the people, if I go with you and stay with you for even a moment, I'll consume you. And so the Lord is not, I know we've sort of beat this drum, but the Bible beats this drum often. The Lord is not watering down the reality of His holiness for the sake of His sinful people. He's not backing down. He's not lowering His standards. And so He says, so I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel, which is an act of divine judgment. But on the flip side, it's also an act of mercy because if He was actually with them, they would be consumed. And so verse 4 does show us something encouraging, that this word was disastrous, that the Israelites were sad. The Israelites at this point in their journey, they want the Lord. We start to see an attitude of genuine repentance. You even see it there in verse 6 as the Lord says for them to take off their ornaments. And they respond by stripping off their ornaments, which is symbolic of their brokenness for their sin simple point of the first six verses is the Israelites are not interested in a replacement. And friends, even though this replacement is better than the last replacement that they had in Exodus 32, it's still not the Lord. So verses 7 through 11 serve as sort of a parenthetical paragraph. There, there are some liberal scholars, I don't know if you did any extra reading, who say that this is out of place, that this shouldn't be here, because if you read, the, uh, the narrative flows nicely from verse 6 all the way to verse 12, blah, 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 blah. All right. I mentioned the, uh, the uniqueness of this literary style and, and just, just how I mean, well it's written. Well, what you have here is if you've ever read a good book or seen a good movie, when, when the story is being told, sometimes it'll sort of pause and then there'll be a narration. Well, that's what you have in verses 7 through 11. And so let's pick up there and I think it'll make sense to you once we talk through it. It says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now I want you to notice something in verse 7. See if you see a point of emphasis, and I'm going to change my tone when I get to the point of emphasis, just to help you out. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Three different ways the same thing is said. And what is it telling us? This tent is not inside the camp. The tent is outside the camp. And so in this season that the Lord is not with His people, in this season of prolonged intercession, that's where the story's going, that's where our minds are being taken by the writer, in this season of prolonged intercession, as the sun's coming up the next day after Exodus 32. And so just like, I mean, when we are, are you know, we fail and we sin and we have this, uh, we're, we're graciously brought back to the Lord and we come back to the Lord, the, the, the truth is the sun comes up the next day and we got to put one foot in front of the other and just keep making the most of what we can each day at a time. Well, that's the season that they're in. And this season, the Lord is not among His people. This tent that Moses builds is not the tabernacle. Again, the tabernacle plans at this point, they're on the back shelf, they're on the back burner. But where the, the Lord meets with Moses is not where? It's not inside the camp. 
It's outside the camp. It's far off. Look at verse 8. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Now, so I love this because it lets us know the people are fully aware of what's happening. They're aware, as aware as we are, more aware as, you know, than we are, obviously, because they were there, but as aware, at least as we are, that the presence of God is outside the camp. The tent is outside. And so when they know Moses is going out and Joshua is going out to, to this tent to meet with the Lord, they're so aware that they stand outside of their tents and worship. Verse 9 says, When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. This is, we've used this word a good bit throughout our study in Exodus. This is another theophany, which is just a visible manifestation of the presence of God. And so as the people knew Moses was going outside the camp to meet with the Lord, they would see the cloud descend on the tent. And as the cloud descended on the tent and Moses entered in, they worshiped Yahweh. Then in verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. More than likely, Joshua staying behind at the tent was to guard the tent. We don't know that for sure. But more than likely, that's what was happening. Well, so at verse 11, that's when that sort of narration stops. It fills us in on kind of what's going on as we pick up in verse 12. In verse 12, we get an inside peek of what happened in the tent. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Verse 13, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. In verse 14, And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Once again, we see the God-appointed mediator doing mediator things. Moses is interceding on behalf of the people, but notice his argument. His argument is, you told me to bring them up. This is Moses talking to the Lord. You said you knew me by name. This nation is your people. So he intercedes again for the people on the basis of God's promises. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying the people deserve this. He's not making light of their sin. He doesn't go that route. His intercession for the people is on behalf of the promises that God has already made to the people. And remember, I, I know I, I sound like a broken record, but I, I want you to see this because it's so vitally important for us seeing the gospel in this. But the Lord put Moses in this position for this purpose. God appointed the mediator. Without the mediator, the people are destroyed. And so that's the reason for the favorable response for Moses. But if you noticed in verse 14, 
He said, because if, if you don't take some time to notice this, then you really don't fully understand what Moses keeps asking for. But the Lord says in 14, my presence will go with who? You. He's talking to Moses. This isn't y'all. You. I'll go with you, Moses. Moses is not satisfied with the Lord's presence, only with him. Look at verse 15. Notice the plural pronoun change, or the pronoun change to plural. Look at verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Once again, we see Moses' deep love for the people. Look, he had a free ticket out. Out. But he's not satisfied with that, and so he steps up again for the sake of his people. He, he doesn't want the Lord to limit his presence and his rest to just him. And I think those plural pronouns make it blatantly clear that Moses once again is pleading for the people to, to the Lord based on what the Lord has already declared to do. Now, I do want to pause just for a second on verse 16 because I believe verse 16 is a diamond in the rough. If we don't pause at verse 16, we can miss something that, that is so beautiful for the people of God, not only in Exodus, but today, because we learn one of the primary distinctions of what it means to be a Christian. Look at verse 16. I want you to see it. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, listen, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Friends, what makes the people of God distinct, both then and now, is the fact and the reality that God Himself is with us. One of the greatest truths of our salvation is that the Lord is with us. Now, I, I'm, I know we mean well, but I want to say this to illustrate the point, but also to help us think through how we encourage one another. And I know we mean well, but we got to stop saying to Christians, my thoughts are with you. Or even my prayers are with you. Keep, keep praying for them. We, we're seeing the beauty of intercessory prayer in this story. But the greatest hope for the Christian that is suffering or struggling, if it's you or if it's me, is not that your thoughts are with me. Like, I'm glad you're thinking about me. It's not even that you're praying for me. Keep on. I'm glad about that. But the greatest way for us to encourage one another, if, if we are in fact Christians... Is the reality that God is with us. Peace, rest, comfort, protection all come from His presence. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, it says this Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, it says, When you pass through the waters, what's the hope? I will be with you. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. How is that possible? He tells us, For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Jesus in Matthew 28, as He gives the Great Commission to His disciples, as He's told them to go to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the gospel and baptizing and making disciples, He leaves us this promise, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There are many, many, many more verses that we could have looked at this morning that point us to the great reality that God is with us. Friends, you can't go and I can't go to one spot on this planet or in this universe that the Lord Himself is not with us. That should bring tremendous hope and comfort for us, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of where we find ourselves, especially considering the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Lord has sent the Holy Spirit to us to dwell permanently inside of us. He's always with us. I mean, there's literally never a moment for the Christian that we're alone. Actually alone. We have the presence of the one who can bring us peace, like ultimate peace, the one who can ultimately protect, the one who can ultimately provide, the one who can ultimately comfort in the Lord himself. It doesn't mean that there's not comfort through other people and other people being with us. That, that, that's part of the Lord's design. That's part of the means that He uses to help us to feel Himself. But the reality is, is we don't always have people. And we may have people and be in a crowd and still feel so alone and so disconnected. And friends, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, the Lord is with you and He's always with you. So Moses' intercession, once again, leads to the Lord's mercy. So God says, I'll go with you. Moses isn't satisfied. He says, well, I want you to go with us. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. The Lord says, I will do as you say. If, I'm thinking if I'm Moses at this point, I'm, I'm sort of backing off a little bit. Right? Do you kind of feel that? Like, you know, when you used to go to your parents and ask them for something, you're like, all right, they said yes two times in a row. Chances are I'm going to get a no pretty soon if I don't sort of chill out. So I'm going to back off a little bit. I can go back and tell the Israelites the great news because they're in a good place. Remember, this was a a disastrous word. This will be wonderful news for the people of God to hear that the Lord has relented and He's going with us. But Moses is still not satisfied. Look at verse 18. Moses said... Please show me your glory. That's a famous verse, right? Songs have been written about it. T-shirts, coffee mugs, show me your glory. Thousands, maybe even millions of sermons have been preached. I've listened to them. I've read books that are primarily about what it means for Moses to ask to see God's glory and what it means for God's glory to be shown. And by no stretch of the imagination am I saying that all of those are wrong. But what I want us to do is I want us to think critically about 
what Moses is actually, um, actually saying. Like, what's he asking for? Think about the context. If, if Moses seeing God's glory was about miracles, then you could say, Moses, um, hey, buddy, I, I don't know where you've been the last few months. I mean, do you remember the burning bush? Like that was, God showed himself. He told you his name. I mean, do you remember the plagues? Where the Lord in his divine power showed his sovereignty over creation and over everything and rescued the people? Hey, hey, Moses, do you remember the Red Sea? Like that mug split. And they walked across on dry ground. Do you remember the manna from heaven? Do you remember the bitter water that was turned sweet? Moses, for, for crying out loud, do you remember Mount Sinai? Like, dude, this just happened. The thunder and the lightning and the covenant and you went up into the cloud and met with the Lord. Like, if Moses is talking about, he just wants to see more miraculous things. One, it's not logical that he would ask that based on what he's already seen. Two, it's not certainly not logical in the way that the Lord responds to him. So what is he asking? Why did he ask this? Moses knew that his request for God's presence with these people would never succeed if it were based on any human effort or qualification. And so don't separate, show me your glory, to the fact that the Lord, or I'm sorry, from the fact that the Lord has just committed himself or shown his commitment to a stiff-necked people. These stiff-necked people have seen the miracles. They're fruit from God's great, of God's great salvation that came from the powers of the plagues and the Red Sea splitting in all of those things. And, and, and so, and so, for Moses to have some assurance that God would actually be this gracious or be as gracious as would be required to these stiff necks, he needed to see some basis in the Lord and not in himself or the people. He needed a foundation. He wanted to know, like, Lord, I mean, I mean essentially he's asking this in layman's terms. Do you have it in you? Do you have the mercy that it's going to take to love these people? And to this God responds, verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness. And I want you to underline or highlight goodness. Because what you're about to hear and learn is goodness. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim. And, and again, underline or highlight proclaim because this lets us know a primary way that the Lord shows his glory is through proclamation. It's through words that can be read and words that can be heard. And will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so when Moses asked to behold God's glory, the first thing of, of first importance of what the Lord tells him is his name, 
in which he explains his name. Just like he did in Exodus chapter 3. He explains his name in Exodus 33. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Or your translations may say, I will, be, I, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now again, try to stay with me here and, and think with me. Moses says, show me your glory, and this is the Lord's response. I am Yahweh, and part of what it means for me to be the Lord is that I will have grace where I'll have grace, and I will show mercy where I will show mercy. Wait, no, I was talking about Red Seas and stuff, like that kind of stuff, Lord. No, that's not what he's talking about. That's not what Moses was after. He wants to know if it's even possible for the Lord to be merciful to this people. Because I'm wondering if Moses at this point is going, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm tired of interceding. He's constantly having to go to the Lord and ask the Lord to relent and intercede on behalf of the people because of their stiff neckness. And so surely he's getting weary. And so he can't help but think, Lord, do you have it in you? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, if you remember when Moses said, and I'm paraphrasing, Moses said, who do I tell him sent me? And he said, you tell him Yahweh sent you. And he says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And so the name of the Lord was explained in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, with the words that you see on the screen. I am who I am. But in Exodus 33, when he gives his name, it is explained with the words, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Something interesting that if you don't take the time, you won't see it. These sentences are constructed in the same way. So the Lord is telling us of the reality of himself one way in Exodus 3, I am who I am. And he's telling us something else of himself in Exodus 33 when he says, I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Essentially, it means this. This is what it means for me to be God. In Exodus 3, the focus... In Exodus 3, the focus is on the reality of God. When he says, I am who I am, if you remember, and I, I prefer saying it this way, the literal translation is, I be who I be. But the focus is on the reality of God, that He is what He is without anything outside of Himself determining His personality or His power. He is who He is with no outside influence. He has always been and He always will be. That's Exodus 3. Exodus 33, the focus is on the work of God. And so that means this, that he does what he does without anything outside of himself determining his choices. Exodus 3, I am who I am. That's the reality of who he is. Exodus 33, the focus is on his work and that he does what he does without any outside Decision or power factoring in. Now, now, friends, listen to me. This puts a very clear biblical, not first Calvinistic, 
not first reformed, a very clear biblical doctrine before us. And it is this, if you want to jot it down, it is the glory of God to be gracious to whomever He pleases apart from any restriction originating outside His own will. This is a biblical doctrine. I know where this might take your mind. I don't know how you were raised. I don't know the backgrounds. I don't know if you were raised in church or not. But what you see from the Bible is that the God of the Bible is massive. He's nowhere near a golden calf. He's not to be manipulated or to be steered by outside influence. And so this clear biblical doctrine is that it is the glory of God to be gracious to whomever He pleases apart from any restriction originating outside His own will. A simple phrase to understand this would be sovereign freedom. God has sovereign freedom. In fact, according to Exodus 33, sovereign freedom is essential to His name. It is His name. To even boil it down some more would be this way. And I have no intent on offense, but this surely might bring some. The Lord is the only being in the universe that actually has free will. That's what it means for Him to be God. And, and we, can, we can use the phrase, and I'm, I'm totally fine with you using the phrase, but I think it needs to come with clarification because if we are proudly beating our chest talking about the free will that we have, I think we need to know and understand what category we're actually putting ourselves in. It's what it means for Him to be God, that He's free to do as He pleases. God is utterly free from the constraints of His creation. The desire of His will moves in directions that He alone determines. Now, I have to address this because we see it in the text. Whatever influences appear to change His will are influences which He ultimately ordained. That's what Moses is doing. Moses has been put into place by the Lord. God appointed the mediator. And so the means that the Lord used, uh, determined to use to show mercy on his people was Moses' intercession. He's still in the middle of it, at the bottom of it, at the top of it all. It's his will. And so his choice to show mercy to one person and not to another is a choice that originates in the mystery of his sovereign will and not in the will of his creature. And I think Exodus 33 shows us that this self-determining freedom of God is actually His name. It is actually His glory. And as the Lord said, I had you highlight, it is actually His goodness. But this information, this information isn't communicated to the people of God so that they can go to the debate hall and win debates. It's not so that they can feel intellectually superior to everyone else on the planet. Oh, you think you know something about God. Let me tell you what I know. No. It had everything to do with everyday life. This fundamental truth about who their God was and His nature and His character was practical. It was to change the way they lived. It opens the name and the glory of God to our understanding to help us to know God and to love Him and to trust Him and to obey Him. And so when the Lord stands before Moses and proclaims His glory, the glory of His absolute divine freedom, 
He is doing it for a very practical purpose. Namely, to give Moses the encouragement to continue. That's what that's all about. I mean, that profound statement of letting us know this is how God and who God actually is. This is how God functions. This is how it works. Was ultimately so that Moses, his appointed leader, would be encouraged to keep on keeping on. Basically, the Lord's saying, I do have it in me. I'm sovereign. So this truth is certainly not an afterthought. Friends, for us today, just like for the Israelites in Exodus 33, this, this truth is for everyday life. The doctrines of God revealed in the Bible are of huge personal and practical and eternal importance. And so I want to close with showing you some practical implications for us of this great doctrine. First thing is this, is that it kills arrogance. Nothing is more humbling than realizing that every good thing we have is a gift from the sovereign grace of God. And I want you to look at me when I say this. Please look at me. Especially salvation. I don't understand why we would salute and celebrate God's provision and sovereignty and protection in all of these lesser areas of the good things that He's given us. Thank you, God, for my family. Thank you, God, for my house. Thank you, God, for my car. Thank you, God, for my health. Look, again, keep thanking God for all those things. But then you, we, we get to the most important thing, and that is our souls being saved. And we go, I did that. I chose, like, I, and I'm fine. Use language I chose. I, I don't, that does nothing. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't threaten the God of the Bible. You choose the Lord. In fact, you know what? You did choose the Lord. But if you get, if you keep asking questions and you look at scripture and you say, well, how did I come to choose the Lord? And he's right there. He's right there. If you're a Christian this morning, the truth is, is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins unable to lift your little pinky finger, the little pinky finger of your will to please the Lord. And God in His absolutely free and unconditional grace set His favor on you and made you alive. Alive. He gave you faith. He, he gave belief. It kills arrogance. No one can beat their chest. No one, think of how arrogant it is, not only as it relates to the Lord to say that I chose in my own will, I chose to follow the Lord. What does that say about people who never choose to follow the Lord? The only explanation you have is they're stupid. They're just not as smart as me. They didn't figure it out or they didn't have the privileges that I had. I heard the gospel they didn't. It breeds arrogance. Therefore, every act of faith and every hint of obedience is the work of God's grace in your life. And so this reality about God, it kills arrogance. Secondly, secondly, there's actually hope for sinners. Because God is sovereign and because God will show mercy, there is hope for sinners. Moses needed hope that God really could have mercy on a stiff-necked people. And he gets it. It ain't on the people. Listen, this, I, I know the tension this causes. 
I feel it. I feel it. I struggle with it. I know the questions that arise. I ask them. I have them. But I can't run to a golden calf because what I see in the Bible isn't what I like. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. And so by faith, I'm going to live with the tension. I'm going to live with the tension and ask God to help me see and understand and know Him as He reveals Himself. But the actual hope for sinners is that God is sovereign and that God does show mercy. Friends, this, this means that no one is too evil to be shown grace. No one. No one. No one. If, it's, if, if we have the decisive choice in salvation, then you can literally say there is no hope for that sinner. There is not a chance they're ever going to turn from their sin and go to the Lord. And you would be absolutely right. But because God is merciful, and because salvation itself is a miraculous free gift out of His sovereign grace, there is hope for the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. So you and I can take the gospel to the worst of the worst of the worst and keep proclaiming the gospel and know if there's ever going to be spiritual life, if there's ever going to be spiritual growth, it's going to come from Him. And it's going to be a gift. And so there's hope. There's hope for missions. I mean, this is John Piper. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he says often in a lot of his books and sermons, the greatest hope for the missionary is that God is who he says he is. It's that God saves. That's the hope as you go out. If you go out this week and share the gospel or if the Lord has put someone on your heart, the ultimate hope is not that you use the right tactic or say it in the right way. The hope is that He saves. He saves sinners. And so there's hope for sinners because God is sovereign. Lastly, not only does this reality of God kill arrogance and bring hope for sinners, but it also causes true worship. When we understand truly, and I, I know I'm not saying this right, but y'all know I'm just, I'm, I mean, I wear jeans and boots, but I'm, I'm just a redneck, all right? <laughs> But when we understand the bigness of God, we then begin true worship of the God of the Bible. He's massive. He's massive. Especially, especially when you read things like we read today. That Moses entered the tent and spoke to the Lord face to face. Now, that, that's not literal because he goes on to tell us at the end two different ways. Hey, you can't see my face and live. That's, that's human to human language the Bible uses to show us and illustrate the closeness and the intimacy that was Moses and the Lord. Now, now wrap our mind, try to wrap your mind around the bigness of the God that we just talked about for the last 10 minutes and the fact that he invites us into his tent. And he desires relationship with sinners. So let's pray. Father, we'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.